Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with the biographer about his or her work. This time, a conversation with the writer Kathy Curtis, currently serving as president of BIO. She's had a lifelong fascination with artists, having earned a master's degree from UC Berkeley in 17th century art history and having been a writer about art for the Los Angeles Times. Her latest book is A Generous Vision, The Creative Life of Elaine de Kooning, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. I asked her why she became intrigued with de Kooning, the wife of abstract artist William de Kooning, and an artist in her own right. Well, it seems that each book leads to the next book, and my previous book was about the painter Grace Hardigan. And at a certain point in Grace's life, the very toward the end, her assistant at the um, Maryland Institute College of Art was going to leave for what he hoped to be a grand career in New York. And Elaine, who was always looking out for other people, said, but what about Grace? And he said, well, what about her? And she said that Grace really needed his help. So I thought, hmm. Uh, and of course, I knew vaguely about her. Um, there was a rather awful book written about just the marriage, um, mm. which had them as sort of drunkards all the time. And th- there was alcoholism. There were affairs that they both, it was an open marriage without, they never really used the term. But she's so much more than that. And uh, I discovered especially that uh, she was a wonderful writer. Hmm. And she seems to have been left out of the books that deal with uh, writers of the era. But she was... Um, she was an arts writer. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah. But she, so her painting was sort of all over the place. Um, she was is best known as a portrait painter, and there's a portrait of uh, President John F. Kennedy that's at the National Portrait Gallery. And, uh, I mean, the splendid thing about it is if you go to the gallery, you have to walk through all these uh, rooms full of presidential portraits, of course, and they're, you know, what you would expect, grave-looking men in small, pretty small Uh, paintings. And then all of a sudden, you walk into the very last room. And here is this tremendously tall portrait of a a standing JFK. And he seems to be sort of caught in a sunbeam or something. It's just so radiant. Was that representative of her work, typically? or Mm, Not in its size, certainly. Um, For the most part, she painted her friends. And who were her friends? Her friends were poets. Uh, Her friends were other artists, um, the choreographer Merce Merce Cunningham. This was her her milieu, and she was really kind of a queen bee in the downtown scene in New York in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. What an exciting time that was, right? It was. You know, it's it's a trope that, you know, the starving artists, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Um, In the 40s, these artists really were starving. So it would often take the better part of a day for Elaine and Bill, um, Willem de Kooning was really known as Bill, for Elaine and Bill to scrounge up enough money to buy food. And they weren't exactly eating at the top restaurants. They would go uh, to the Automat or to these the cheap restaurants, you know, that... uh, that artists went to in the day. I used to cover art too, so I'm very oh. fascinated by women as artists and how marginalized they've been. I mean, they are as writers too through history, but really 
as far as visual art. But in terms of feminism, though, um, yes, she once painted and carried a banner in a small parade. But uh, just like most of the other women artists of her generation, she really didn't have much use for feminism because her feeling was that if a woman artist was any good, she'd get somewhere, and if she wasn't, she wouldn't, and that the male artists of her period were struggling just as much as she was. She was criticized, at least you suggest, because she did use his name, de Kooning's name, as opposed to just Lee Krasner and keeping her own. So she right. tried to assume that identity, too. Well, in the beginning, you know, she was young, although she was never as young as she said she was. She was actually born in 1918, and she told everybody she was born in 1920. But uh, she was much younger, though, than he was. She really looked up to him. She She just thought he was the greatest painter ever, and, you know, he really is a very important painter. And, of course, women in those years mostly did take their husbands' names, you know, when they married. Right. And uh, and they never did divorce. Now, she left him in, in 1957, but they never divorced. And the lovely part of the story that speaks well uh, for Elaine, as, as do many other things she did, is that when he was suffering uh, from severe alcoholism, uh, she moved to uh, the Springs out on Long Island, New York, to be with him. Um, mm. She didn't move into his place, but she bought a house nearby. And she uh, sort of, she, she really began to put order into his life. Mm. Later in, the, in, in his life, when he was rather incoherent, there was a movie made about him uh, that she, in which she took part. And uh, when he would say something that was slightly incorrect, or uh, it was actually right, but not what she wanted to project, she would say, oh, Bill, it really was this other thing. And so she would kind of rush in, and that was her job. But she still always had her own life, even then, and um, she traveled. It was then that she traveled uh, overseas, because, okay, to be fair, uh, he did provide her with finances that she never had. She was always, through the rest of the earlier part of her life, she, she never had any money, but she had this lovely slogan, which was, take care of the luxuries and the necessities will take care of themselves. So she, um, you know, there were records of her bouncing checks all the time. And I mean, it was kind of a happy-go-lucky life that she was able to to keep going because she had a lot of friends and they would help her out. They would loan her money. So when she came back to him, among the trips she made were trips to the prehistoric caves uh, in France and Spain. And she, among the very last paintings she made were um, paintings that interpreted these cave paintings. Animals were always important to her hmm. because movement was important to her. When she was a young woman, um, she took dance lessons, and she was very athletic. She was a team leader of athletics in high school. And so people in motion, animals in motion, and that kind of, uh, when she left uh, Bill, she was hired to teach at the University of New Mexico, which was her first trip to the West. And she fell in love with the landscape. She was living in Albuquerque. And she met a, a woman there who, uh, a fellow painter, and also um, a poet. And it was the poet who was an aficionada of the bullfights in Mexico. Mm. So they would drive down to Mexico and watch the bullfights. And this sort of unlikely passion of hers uh, turned into many, many paintings of just the bull, though. Very rarely the matador. She was just fascinated by the bull. 
And so just this, just similarly, she was fascinated by these prehistoric animals uh, running across the walls of the caves. Fascinating. Back to process just for a minute. Did you go to the West? or? Um, yes, I, I did go out to Albuquerque because I had never been there. I wanted to see what this Western light and Western landscape was like. And I went to the springs and um, just to get some sense of where it was that she lived at that point. Um, there wasn't much point in poking around Brooklyn because it's changed so much since um, 1918. <laughs> but I, I have to confess, I, I didn't go to Brooklyn. The places she lived, she lived in an incredible number of different places. She was always moving from one loft to another until she moved finally out to Long Island. Explain the source material. Well, the biggest issue, uh, and one I have to say, and I'd say it right up front in the preface that I did not solve, everybody who knows about Elaine knows that she kept a series of journals. And one of her nephews told me there were about 200 of these little notebooks. He saw some of them, and he gave me a tantalizing glimpse, not a literal one, but he he said that there were uh, numerous remarks about the peccadilloes of artist friends. N- nobody knows where they are. Mm. And some people would tell me that uh, there's no point in my writing a biography if I couldn't find them. But you know, I didn't have the journals, but what I had are her wonderful letters. Without the letters, I, I wouldn't have been able to get nearly as close to her as, as I believe I have. The thing that you need to do generally is to look to people's friends, because the friends have archives. So you, you began by mining the people who were alive or their archives. Well, pe- and also people who knew her. You know, pe- one person leads to another in terms of the living people. And there is a, a modest archive at the Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian. So if for anyone researching an artist, that's the place to start. And there were archives of uh, some of the people in her circle. She wrote for Art News and... Um, the editor of Art News has an archive there. And uh, there was uh, the son of a good friend of hers teaches in New York. And his mother uh, wrote a fascinating uh, unpublished memoir, I guess. And he let me look at the pages that had to do with Elaine. And that was, that was incredibly useful. And it's really like putting together a mosaic when you write a biography. People generally that you speak to on the phone, they say, oh, I can't remember, or I'm, I'm or at the end of the conversation, they say, oh, I'm so sorry, I wasn't very helpful. And I say truly, yes, you were helpful. And I don't really need to tell them that. It might have been just a tiny little glimpse of something that I hadn't really fully understood, or they broadened it for me, or they made me realize that what I thought was, was erroneous. It is a strange part of the process because some people think, I think, that you just go to, you know, Wikipedia in the age of Google and just find out everything you need to know about someone. And it's much more Sherlock Holmes than that, right? Right. Yeah. But one way in which I feel that I'm different from many other biographers is that I start writing really, really soon. In fact, I mean, I'm a writer. The reason I am a biographer is that I needed something to write about. Whereas I think many biographers are archivists at heart, and then, of course, they also have to write the book. So as soon as I get enough information to write something, I write something. And I write the whole book with holes in it. And then I go back and I make a list of what the holes consist of, and then I try and fill them. And on the way, of course, I get lots of new ideas, and sometimes my precious thought about something is completely overturned by what somebody says or what I discovered in an archive. But it's 
it just works for me. How long did the process take in this case? Well, I already knew about the milieu from writing the previous book about an artist who lived in pretty much the exact same period and place in New York. So it took me two years. But this is two years of writing seven days a week, maybe 360 days a year, because I just love, I love this work. It's my life. That's great. And did you had you sold it at what point? <laughs> um, yeah, well, my belief is that you just have to keep plugging, even if you don't have a contract yet. And so I wrote, uh, this has happened now with three of my books. I wrote almost the whole book before I had a contract. Because you have to believe in yourself. And you believe in the value of the person you're writing about. And by God, you will find someone, some publisher, because I am not one to self-publish, some publisher who will take it on. And I've been fortunate in many respects that my publisher is Oxford University Press. Very good people there, lovely editor, and they take care with the visual aspects of the book. It, visual meaning the, just not just the cover, but are, is there art inside? And there's too? Yes, of course, in addition to the candid photographs, of Elaine through the years, um, there are reproductions of reproductions of paintings, but I must say, um, collecting those is quite a hassle. It generally takes me an entire month working every business day, contacting the repositories of these, you know, of these paintings and pleading poverty because sometimes it's very expensive. You have to pay for the rights, as well. Sometimes you have to pay for them to photograph the, the painting to begin with. I try to avoid those situations because it's expensive. I ran into a problem with my first biography. I had interviewed uh, Grace's trustee, uh, in fact, the very man who said that um, he was just going to go to New York and was told that he'd better stay and pay attention to, to Grace. And he, he won the jackpot because he became her trustee. He, every single painting she painted is under his thumb. And so I had interviewed him. It was a great interview. And I really didn't uh, imagine there would be any problems with him in terms of getting the rights to reproduce the paintings. But when I contacted him, book was finished. He said, now, wait a minute. He said, you promised that I can read the manuscript. And I said, no, I didn't. I never, ever let anyone read my manuscript. Because I come from journalism, there was a practice of never letting your source read you know, what you'd written about them or even read their quote. Um, I know some biographers practice differently, but this is what I stick to. So, uh, okay, so he lied. Uh, but the thing was it, was, it was a standoff. And I wrote an email, frantic email, to my editor. I said, well, you know, now what? And he said, well, we could potentially publish the book without any of the photos of the art, which, you know, would make it, of course, a strange biography of an artist. But he came up with a solution. And the solution was that I would just show this man uh, the preface. And I went back to the preface, and what I think I actually made it better sent it off to this man, crossed my fingers, and fortunately he said, okay. Well, Obstacle. otherwise I simply wouldn't have been allowed to publish any of those, any photos of any of her work. I mean, it, it's really amazing that somebody's painting can be in the Metropolitan Museum of Art or a similar institution, famous institution, but it's the trustee or the estate or the whatever who owns the copyright. And navigating that is a big part of being a biographer, right? Understanding rights ownership and how it works for also, and against you. Yes. And also um, another sort of a tip, I, I guess I probably most biographers know this, but um, to avoid entangling problems with rights holders of other material, the stuff you're quoting, what I, I firmly believe in 
uh, very judiciously using the premise of fair use, according to which you can excerpt very small amounts of published material. Don't clog up your manuscript, you know, with big chunks of stuff. Just just get to the point. Mm-hmm. You know, what is what is the phrase? What is the maybe the sentence or two that really says the thing that you think is so wonderful? Is there a bigger picture? I mean, you're obviously a lifelong interest in art and women in art, but I I like the fact I mean, it's it's played against me in terms of not getting a large advance, but I like the fact that they were are basically unknowns. Really the th- the point is I like the idea of writing a book about someone about whom no one else has written a book. In a way, I don't really understand what it could be like when you're faced with a shelf full of books by, about this person. The whole idea for you with writing and biography is illuminating somebody who would be a footnote otherwise, if that. I mean, two things have to be applicable. One thing is I have to really care deeply about the person's work. Uh, that probably goes without saying. But as a biographer, they have to have a really colorful life. I mean, there are so many people who did great, great things in the world. But, you know, they, they married young. They stayed married. They settled down. They, you know, didn't drink too much, they, et cetera, et cetera. I like people who uh, were a little more rambunctious than that. You live with this person every single day until and after you send that manuscript in. I, in a way, I'm still living with her. You always will be. You're her living representative, and even after you're gone, the book will be a representative of her. So it's an incredible, that's what makes book writing so powerful, right? It's, we hope. Yeah, we hope. <laughs> yeah. I asked Kathy Curtis to contextualize the passage of her work she's about to read for us about Elaine de Kooning's commission to paint President John F. Kennedy. When Elaine painted JFK, it was in the Winter White House, so-called, which is in Palm Beach, Florida. So he's always in the sunlight when she sees him. And she was, it, she was chosen, in fact, for this portrait commission because she was known as a very quick painter of portraits. And, and JFK was famously restless. So uh, the combination was, you know, was a good one. And he was always being called away to a meeting or, you know, she had to catch, catch him when she could. And the thing is that in this casual setting, when she first saw him, he was sitting with uh, his leg up on one leg up on his the other knee, so exposing his crotch. And she so she said, "This is not the best way for you to sit." And he he said, "Well, I'm just going to sit this way." So she figured, okay. But then she had the problem of trying to paint a, a portrait of of this man sitting in a, a non presidential position. And I probably should add, because uh, his love life, the president's, was is now well known, that there was no romance between Elaine and JFK. And in fact, a photograph we have of her painting him, it's taken from the rear. So we, we see her at work and we see him. She's wearing the world's most dowdy jumper. I never in any other photograph saw her wearing such an outfit. So uh, for whatever reason, she decided she was going to be all business on this job. And now, here's Kathy Curtis reading from A Generous Vision, The Creative Life of Elaine de Kooning. Back in her New York studio, Elaine worked furiously on several paintings based on her sketch of Kennedy's casual pose on day one. Years later, she claimed to have worked on the eyes in one portrait for an entire week, spending six hours a day painting, wiping down, and repainting in an effort to capture the image in her mind. A month after her return to New York, 
When one of Kennedy's representatives came to view her progress, he was unpleasantly surprised. That's not a presidential pose, he told her. He'd never allow anyone to see that. Jackie, maybe, but he'd have to keep it in the bedroom. Elaine went back to her charcoal sketch, showing him supporting his body on one arm of the chair. Realizing that she would have to paint him wearing a jacket, she made drawings of him in his suit when she saw him on TV and collected photographs of him from newspapers and magazines. She struggled to deal with the structure of the jacket and the sense of color, as well as the structure of the pose. Always attracted to the distinctive elements that make it possible to identify a person from a distance, Elaine said she was partial to tiny shots of the president where the features were indistinct yet unmistakable. She was also intrigued by a group of photographs by Kennedy's official photographer, Jacques Lowe, in which he looked anxious, images that he insisted never be published for that very reason. Portraits she really cared about, she once said, were those that penetrate, that expose. Now her mission was not only to capture a likeness, but also to convey what it meant to carry the burdens of the chief executive of the United States. She was determined to convey the experience of a one-to-one -one contact with Kennedy, to communicate his warmth, sharp wit, appraising glance, and something of the outdoor figure I saw in the brilliant Florida sunshine. It was an almost impossibly ambitious aim. In February, as she wrote to her friend, the whole Florida episode was like a fairy tale, or rather, I felt like 12-year-old Elaine having a far-fetched daydream. That was an excerpt from A Generous Vision, The Creative Life of Elaine de Kooning, read by author Kathy Curtis on December 11, 2017, at The Reef in downtown Los Angeles. Earlier, you heard my conversation with her, recorded that same day. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Until next time, thanks for listening and enjoy your day. Bye.